Well, good morning, everybody. Wasn't it great to start our worship time with a baptism? Give Norman an applause. Hand out. He's somewhere in here, so you make sure you let him know how much uh, you're, you're happy for him. Well, hey, last week we started a uh, three-part series from the book of Job. And I hope that uh, many of you were able to spend some time in the book of Job. And I know it's 42 chapters long, so it, it takes a little time to get through it, doesn't it? And much of it's written in what's a poetic genre or more poetry, and I don't know how it is for you, but for me, that takes me a little bit more focus, a little bit more uh, uh, direct thinking as I'm reading. And so it's going to take some time. It's, it's a big book, but I want to encourage you to continue to pursue your way and push your way through the book of Job. It will bless you tremendously. But overall, Job is this fascinating true story of an account of a man who had in one horrific day, like the worst day of his whole life. I mean, in one day, he loses all of his herds, his flocks, all of his servants, uh, his wealth, his livelihood, just gone. And then on that very same day, he finds out that all 10 of his children have been tragically killed. And so in one singular day, everything that is valuable and important to Job, just gone. And I mean gone. Can you imagine how you'd respond to such news? I asked you that last week, and I still this day I've thought about it. I don't know how I would respond to that. How would you respond to such tragedy coming into your life? And then on top of that, Job's health fails him. He gets very sick, so sick, that when his friends come to visit him, the Bible tells us that they don't even recognize him. How sick do you got to get for your closest friends to not even recognize you anymore? That's Job. In a very short amount of time, Job has gone from the top of every list you could be on to the very bottom It's quite a fall for a guy that's described in the Bible as blameless and upright, somebody who feared evil or feared God and shunned evil. I mean, this is quite a transition for somebody who was once considered the greatest of all the people in that area. You know, what Job didn't know and what nobody knew at that time was that he was the subject of this conversation between God and Satan. There's this heavenly drama that's unfolding, and he doesn't know anything about it. No, nobody did. He just knew that his world was, was falling apart. You know, we think about this scene that unfolds in heaven with God and, and his angels and, and Satan, uh, how they came to present themselves before him. Uh, you, you might recall that Satan is referred to as a fallen angel. That's how we understand who he was and, and what his you know, background was. You may not know this, but this heavenly scene that's talked about in Job, uh, did you realize that, or do you realize that this is not unique to the book of Job? Now, certainly what happens here in Job, it's the most prominent example of something like this, but it's not unique to the book of Job. There are other examples, there are other scenes of heavenly drama playing out in God's word. You don't need to turn there, but 1 Kings chapter 2 or 22 is one of those scenes. We have a prophet that we learn about. His name is Micaiah, and God sends this prophet to deliver a message to King Ahab. If you're familiar with your Old Testament history, King Ahab was an evil king, and the Bible tells us that he was more evil than all the kings before him. So this is not a good dude, not a good dude at all. Now, do you remember who he's married to? He's married to Jezebel. That's right. Is that name ring a bell? Jezebel. And she was a piece of work, let me tell you. Um, l- let me just tell you this. You will not find the name Jezebel in any baby names books today. Do you know that? <laughs> 
there's a very good reason for why we don't name our daughters Jezebel. I have not come across a Jezebel um, in, yet in any of my time in the ministry. There's a good reason for that. But in 1 Kings chapter 22, this prophet Micaiah is sent by God to deliver the news to King Ahab that he's about to get what's coming to him. This evil king, your time on this earth is coming to an end, and this is how it's going to happen. Now, as Micaiah shows up to deliver this news to King Ahab, listen to how he describes what's going to happen to him. I'm going to read it to you. Verse 19, Micaiah continued, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw, okay, so he's replaying something that the Lord allowed him to see, okay? I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. Micaiah is describing the scene that is not all that dissimilar from what we read about in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. This heavenly scene, there's angels around God and they're having conversations and God's like, this is what I'm going to do. I need a volunteer to go in there and entice Ahab to do what I want him to do, which is to go die. It's kind of, you think about it like, wow, this, somewhere else than the book of Job that this thing's happened? Does it happen anywhere else? You know, in, in, in Psalm chapter 89, we kind of get another glimpse of a heavenly scene like this. The, the psalmist speaks of it. Psalm 89.5 says this, The heavens praise your wonder, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. So the inspired psalmist here writes about an assembly of the holy ones. And he talks about in terms of how God is more awesome than all those who surround him. You know, there's other references too, like in Zechariah chapter 3, God allows Zechariah to have a vision of a heavenly scene. And in this vision, he sees the high priest Joshua standing before an angel of the Lord. And then who shows up in this vision? Standing right beside him is none other than Satan. And Satan is there to accuse the whole thing. And it says in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So here you have, in this vision anyway, you've got Satan accusing Joshua and God stepping in to rebuke Satan and what he's doing there. Now, I point all that out to you today just so you know this. There is always more going on than meets the eye, okay? And we talked about how last week, we, the book of Job, it, it informs us that what? Our perspective is limited. Remember that from last week? Our perspective is limited. And this is, this is very true. There is always more going on than what we can see in the moment. Now, you might recall, what is Satan's ultimate goal to get Job to do? His ultimate goal is to get Job to curse God to his face. This whole thing was to say, Job, you're going to curse God to your face and, and he'll do it. That, that was his ultimate goal. And, and this goal of Satan's is still top of his list. That is still his goal for you and, and for me. It's still his goal for your kids and for your grandchildren. It's still his goal 
for our entire world, for our entire world to shake our fist at God and to curse him to his face, that would bring nothing more, that would be more joyful to Satan than you can imagine. That's still his goal. So when Satan shows up in Job chapter 1 to this heavenly assembly with God and his angels, we can probably assume, and I, I emphasize probably, we could probably assume this was not the first time that something like this had ever happened. And we could possibly conclude that this wasn't the last time that something like this has taken place. Do you ever wonder if this kind of thing continues to this day? Have you ever wondered about it in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2? Do you ever wonder if God and Satan talk much? Do you ever wonder if Satan still presents himself before the Lord from time to time to answer questions? I have no idea. I'm just being honest. I have no idea if that still takes place. But it is one of those things that kind of makes you go, hmm. Job 1.7, we learn that God asked the question to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. You know, when God asked that question, it's not like he was curious. We can agree on that, right? God knows everything. He sees everything. He knows exactly what Satan was up to back then. He knows exactly what Satan is up to today. It's not like God was like, hey, Satan, long time no see. Where have you been all these years? I, I don't get that impression at all because nothing escapes God's notice. And Satan knows this too. And in my opinion, this is why Satan gives him a very generic answer. Oh, you know, doing my thing, roaming around, you know, you know what I'm up to. Two times God asks him the question, two times Satan gives him the same answer. Where have you been? Just roaming the earth. Outside of that, in the book of Job, we get no further insights as to what Satan was doing roaming the earth. He doesn't even show up again in the book of Job after chapter 2. But there's one thing that I love so much about God's Word, and I hope it's something you have come to love and appreciate as well, and that is the harmony and the continuity of the Scriptures throughout the Old and the New Testaments. So we don't get any details in Job chapter 1 and 2 as to what Satan was up to while he was roaming the earth. But in the New Testament, however, I do believe that we get the answer to the question. And it comes from the Apostle Peter as he is trying to encourage the church to stay strong and faithful and to stand up against the enemy. Listen to what Peter says to the church in 1 Peter 5, 8, or 5, 8, 9. He says to the church, be alert and sober. Mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Now listen to this description. He prowls around like a, like a roaring lion, looking for somebody to devour, to destroy. Resist him, stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of God, the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of struggles. What was Satan doing in Job chapter 1 and 2 when he says, I am roaming the earth? Well, we can conclude because of the harmony of the scriptures that Satan was going through the earth looking for somebody to destroy. Now, Satan doesn't say so, but in the text, it certainly seems like God knows so. Because the very next words out of God's mouth were what? Have you considered Job. 
God already knew that Satan was roaming the earth. God already knew that he was taking names. And it's like God saying, I got a name for you. How about Job? I know you're looking for somebody. How about him? Now, I'm going to be honest with you, friends. I want God to be very proud of me. But I'm not sure I want to be on his have you considered list. Are we together on that? I want God to be proud of me, just like you want God. But I don't want to be on that list. Unbeknownst to Job, he was at the top of God's have you considered list. And I come back to this, Job had no idea. Because there's always more going on than meets the eye, and our perspective is limited. He had no idea the list existed. He had no idea he was at the top of the list. He had no idea that God was throwing his name out there like that. All he knew at this point is that his world has come crashing down. And in his mind, the lights of heaven have completely gone out. That's all he knew. And sometimes that's all we know too. You know, when we feel that way, and I would argue that we all feel that way at some point in our lives because we all struggle at times and with different levels of intensity in our lives. There's those seasons we find ourselves in in life and we need to be reminded that our enemy is real and our enemy wants you to do nothing more. He will nothing more would bring joy to his life than to know that you are cursing God to his face. That's what he wants. And in the midst of your struggles, he wants you to look to heaven and say, this ain't worth it, God. I am out. That's what he wants. And I'm here to tell you today, don't do that. I'm here to echo the words of the Apostle Paul who said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And I'm wondering how many of you today need to be reminded, I got to be strong in the Lord. That's what I need right now in my life. I need to be strong in the Lord. I'm struggling. Paul goes on to say, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Who does Paul identify as our real enemy? It's the devil. And then he qualifies this for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, our fight is not against with each other. It's with our enemy who wants you to curse God to his face. That's our fight. That's who we're against. It's our Struggles not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Our fight's against him. If you're somebody who likes to take notes or just remember stuff, if you're taking notes in the app, I want you to remember this. We are in a spiritual battle, and our challenger is the devil. Every last one of us. We're in a spiritual battle, and our enemy, our challenger, is the devil. The nice thing about this battle that we're in, we already know how it ends, don't we? We've read the end of the book, right? We win, and that's all over the pages of Scripture, but even knowing that we ultimately win, and we claim the victory in Jesus Christ, and Satan's already defeated, but even though we know that, it doesn't make our current struggles any less intense, do they? Even though we know we win, it's still hard. In Job chapter 1 and 2, we see a man who is winning the spiritual battle. He loses everything. Nobody struggled as bad as Job has ever, I don't think. And what do we read in the very first chapter? In all of this, he, did, he never charged God with wrongdoing. It says in the second chapter, he did not sin by what he said. He maintained his integrity. 
Remember, he said things like, naked I came to this world, naked I'm going to leave. I'm not going to curse God. Nothing. This struggle is not going to make me turn my back on God. My question for you today is, how are you doing in your own spiritual battle? How are you holding up? You know, in our ongoing pursuit, it seems, to always understand the, the, the answer to the question of why, why are we struggling? Have you ever stopped to consider that what you might be in is in the middle of a spiritual battle? That's why Paul challenges the church. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes because we are in a spiritual battle. How are you doing? Are you staying strong in the Lord? Are you winning this battle? You know, you would think that things couldn't get any worse for Job, but we just keep reading and we find out they do. Do you have your Bibles open to Job chapter 2? Job chapter 2, we're going to read the next part. We're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to find out that Job's friends show up. And you think this is a good thing. You might be wrong. Let's read it together. Chapter 2, verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namanite, when they heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. You know, when we meet these, these three friends, they do exactly what good friends are supposed to do. They're there to bring comfort. They're, they're there to sympathize with Job. And there's no indication from the text that they were there for any other purpose but to bring sympathy, comfort, and just to stand with their friend. I mean, they sit with them for seven days and don't say a word. I mean, they're there. So they do the right thing in the beginning. They sat with him. It kind of reminds me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, 15, when he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. But I tell you, if you have a friend in your life who follows Christ and that friend understands the Christian principle of mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice, if you've got a friend like that, then you are blessed. By all appearances, that's what these friends are here to do. But then after seven days, they start to talk. And the more they talk, the more things go downhill. They, they talk and they, they're there to comfort and sympathize, but their talking and their conversation transitions to accusations. It transitions to arguing. And, and it's so full of worldly wisdom. And let's be honest, it's just not so wise if you've read it before. So that goes on for the next 35 chapters of the book of Job. That is the bulk of the book of Job, is this back and forth argument between Job and his friends over why he is suffering so much. I've heard it said this way, that these 35 chapters in the book of Job, it is some of the finest poetry and lousiest philosophy in history. And if you've read it, you know what I mean. But all of these friends, they essentially have the same opinion 
of what's going on with Job, that he is being punished for some terrible sin that obviously he has committed. And the only way that he could ever be restored is if he would acknowledge all of his wrongdoing. In a nutshell, they all agree that this is Job's problem. He's a rotten dude and he's getting punished for it. Now they all have different takes on God and they all have different kind of philosophies and nuances about exactly what this suffering is about. But at the end of the day, they all agree that it's obviously Job's fault. He did something and he needs to acknowledge it. So let's look at these three friends just really quickly. Let's take the first friend, Eliphaz. Here's how Eliphaz saw God. He saw God as rigid, as tough, and, and giving Job what he deserves. That's how he sees God. I wonder, do you guys have a friend, anybody in your life that kind of sees God the same way? God's hard. God's rigid. He's not loving. You know, God's up there in heaven just doling out punishments right and left because we're all terrible, rotten people. And that's, anybody, you know anybody that thinks of God that way? Did you ever used to think about God that way? That, that's this friend. That's this friend. Here's what he said in Job chapter 4, verse 7. He says, consider now who being innocent ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, Job, you did this. This is you. Now, is there any truth in what he's saying? Well, sure, I think there's some truth in there based on the context. We live in a cause and effect world. We are a reaping, sowing culture. We certainly know there's consequences to our sins. And if we all took the time to, we could all say, yeah, this happened to this guy and this happened to me and it's all a result of, we, we know that. But then there are those inexplicable, inexplicable situations like Job. And it goes against all conventional wisdom. Like, like the friend is saying, my logic comes to this conclusion. You messed up. But did Job mess up? There's no evidence that Job messed up. Job was a righteous man. God himself even said Job was a righteous man. The, the wise counsel is not so wise. And then you have another friend, this Bildad guy. He's not too dissimilar from Eliphaz, but, but his thought was this, that Job's suffering might be the result directly of his own sin. So the first guy's like cause and effect. You've obviously done something. What is it? This guy's like, no, you did something wrong. This is your sin. He's kind of like, Job, if you were really a man of integrity, you know, this wouldn't be happening to you. Surely you've sinned. And, and you're suffering the result of that. Here's what he says in Job 8.20. He says, Job, surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hand of evildoers. He's like, God doesn't do that. Let's be, come on, let's think this thing through. God doesn't do that. Does he? This is just bad counsel from somebody who's completely misinformed and not in tune with the true God. Because Job is actually distinguished as a man of integrity. And then there's other friends, Zophar. This guy's just more cold-hearted than the others. He suggests that Job deserves even worse things to happen to him. Can you imagine? Anybody got a negative Nelly in your life? Everything's bad. The sky is always falling. It could always be worse. That's this guy. Oh, no, you deserve worse than this, Job. He says this in Job 11.6. Listen, God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. Can you imagine Job's in there? I've already lost everything. What else is there to punish me with? Oh, no, you deserve more. That's him. These friends came to help, it seems, but all they did was make matters worse. And let's not forget that these three friends show up after Job's wife weighed in with her own opinion. Remember what she said? Job, just curse God and die already. 
This is the not-so-wise counsel. Um, Well-known pastor Greg Lowry from Harvest Church, he has an interesting way of explaining these friends and what they think. He says this, Hallmark would definitely not hire Job's friends to write their cards. Because if they did hire his friends to write their Hallmark cards, they would sound a lot like this. Eliphaz's card on the outside would say, sorry, you're sick. And then you open the card up and it says, you got what you deserved. Can you imagine getting a card like that? That's his one friend. Bildad's card would say this, hoping you get well soon. And then on the inside, it would read, but if you were really as godly as you claim, this would not have happened to you. Love, Bildad. Can you imagine getting a card like that? Zophar's card would be even more brutal. On the outside, it would say, I hope you get worse. And on the inside, you will die and no one will remember you. That's what the inside would say. I think his wife's card would be the worst of them all. On the cover, it would say, well, it looks like your life is over. That's what the front of her card would say. And then you'd open it up and it would say, just curse God and die already. Man, can you imagine You know, the entire book of Job brings this reality to the forefront of the conversation that we are in a spiritual battle and our challenger is the devil. But if you're still taking notes, this is the other thing I'd like to point out to you. These 35 chapters of this argument between Job and his friends, they let us know that we are in a mental battle and our challenger is worldly thinking. That we are in a mental battle And our challenger is worldly thinking. When these three friends show up, they give him essentially what their own opinions on life are. Their own opinions on why he is suffering through the lens of their worldly way of thinking about it. They advise him to take actions that actually are contrary to God's truth. And you know, we are confronted with these same kinds of things today. Same kind of worldly thinking, same kind of advice and counsel to take action and to think about things that are actually contrary to what God has clearly stated in his word. We live in a world that is constantly trying to pull us towards worldliness. And as a Christian, we fight that because we want to pull ourselves towards holiness. There's this mental battle. It all starts in your mind first. It's one in your mind first. And there's this tug of war to think like the world or to think like God. And I just want you to know today, I hope you acknowledge this, holiness and worldliness are completely incompatible all the time. All the time. They don't go together. You know, James in the Bible tells us that there's two kinds of wisdom in this world. He says there's an earthly wisdom and his words describes it like this. Earthly wisdom is unspiritual, so it's, it's not godly at all. It's unspiritual, it's demonic, he says. It's full of envy, selfish ambition, disorder, and evil practices. And I would say, friends, you can sum it all up. That's, in a nutshell, how the world thinks. The world doesn't think godliness. It doesn't think holiness. It thinks selfishness and greed and get what you got, do what you want, whatever feels good. That's the culmination of how the world says you need to live your life. It's earthly wisdom. And it's like Job's friends. Their advice and their counsel more closely reflects worldly thinking. But James says there is another kind of wisdom. There is a heavenly wisdom. Here's what he says about it. Chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, 
peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. There's a thinking that reflects God's desire and will and his word, and that is that is heavenly wisdom that you get from that. And there is thinking that reflects worldly wisdom. It's earthly wisdom. These two things are in competition with each other. They're constantly pulling us one way or the other. And our stand is that the devil is over here pulling us with the world. And our stand is against him. It's so much a spiritual battle. It's a mental battle that we fight all the time. But through earthly wisdom, Job's friends almost had him convinced that he was this evil, rotten person that deserved everything that was happening to him and that God is not coming to his rescue because, Job, you're just that bad. Can you imagine if Job went all the way with him? What would have happened? I wonder how many of us in here today have been listening too closely to worldly wisdom. And it comes at us from all different directions. The counsel of the unholy. The, the, the wisdom that's not so wise. Have we been guilty of just paying a little bit too much attention to that lately? And it's got you doubting some things. It's got you questioning what you've always believed and these truths that you've held on firmly about. And, and, and maybe it's, it's not a friend who's saying this or whatever. Maybe it's other voices. Maybe it's other not-so-wise counsel that you've been listening to. You know, you read the news and there's always somebody that is trying to explain why life is the way it is and why culture is the way it is. And they're trying to tell you how to think about these things. And, and let's be honest, some of like, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with what to think and what to believe about all these things that are happening in our world today. Are we listening to too much earthly wisdom and not enough godly wisdom? Perhaps maybe an incident happened at work or maybe at school and everybody's talking about it. And everybody's weighing in on it. And they're trying to get you to believe a certain way about it. And you're being pulled. What do I listen to? Some of it sounds really smart, but maybe it's not godly. But this is what I believe. And I don't know. How does that gel? We're in this mental battle. Maybe you're in a relationship right now. And whoever you're with, your boyfriend or girlfriend, they draw the line differently than you when it comes to physical touch and intimacy. Boy, they're using all kinds of earthly wisdom to get you to come over and be on that side with him or her. Deep down, you know, ah, it's not doesn't sound right, but you're under pressure. And some of the things they say makes a lot of sense. This mental struggle, this battle that we're in. The not-so-wise counsel of earthly wisdom. Society tells you to accept something as normal but everything in you and your faith says, no, that is not normal. But you're being pulled and confused by this earthly wisdom. If you're like many Christians, you struggle to articulate why someone else's wisdom is not for you. Or how to even respond to certain subjects. Because let's be honest, sometimes... When we're talking about these things, it feels like we're going up against the smartest guy in the room and I'm the most inadequate person to be talking about it. You feel that way? I feel that way sometimes. A lot, actually. 
you know, unless you're not paying attention to anything, then we're all aware that uh, we are in the middle of some really heavy social issues in our country right now. Issues of sexuality and gender, race and immigration and this pandemic continues and abortion and many other things that we are walking through as a nation. And we are inundated with counsel and advice and opinions from the expert down to the novice. Social media is a mess today of half-tangled truths, misguidance, and disrespect. Absolutely. And we as a church, we live on the front lines of earthly wisdom. And the battle lately has confused the Christian and has misguided the church far too much in recent days. The story of Job, it is a true story. But let's say for just thinking, let's say it was a parable. You know, the parables are, Jesus taught in parables a lot, and everything has a double meaning. This means this, and this represents that. What if Job was a parable? If it was, I think Job would, in the story, represent the church today, and his three friends would represent the world. And the world has done a pretty good job at trying to blame the church for all of life's problems and confuse the church so badly that it has forgotten that it is the bride of Christ and that means something. In our world where Satan still roams, there will always be lies, manipulation, misguided counsel, waging a mental battle, trying to pull you away from holiness. And let's be honest, this world and all of that can be a confusing place, especially if you're in the midst of suffering. But friends, can I pull us back as a church family, pull us back to to home plate? Can I pull us back to base for just a minute and remind you that as a Christian, we live on promises not explanations. Our faith is grounded in the promises of God, not the explanations of the not so wise. What do I mean by the promises of God? The, the Bible's loaded with promises. Our faith is built upon them. Like God promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Aren't you glad that that's the way the Lord feels? I'm not going to leave you. I would much rather have that promise than an explanation of why things hurt. I would rather have that promise than an explanation of why I'm alone. God promises to never leave us nor forsake us. What else has God promised? God promises to do what? That I will take care of your needs. Isn't it wonderful to have a God that promises to take care of us? Isn't it incredible to know that we have a God that promises that he knows what we need before we even know what we need ourselves or to know what even to ask for? The promise that God cares for us. I would rather know and stake my claim in the fact that God promises to care for me than an explanation for why this is happening. God promises to forgive our sins. God promises that there is everlasting life where ultimately our struggles in this world will pale in comparison to the everlasting loving God and his glory of being in heaven forever. We live on promises not explanations. And I see in the story of Job, his friends were trying to explain things. And Job 
did his best to stake his claim on God's promises. God doesn't do that. God's not this way. I've done nothing wrong. He was staked in the promises of God and who he is, not this not-so-wise counsel of the world. You see, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What an incredible promise that is, that God stepped out of heaven and he walked the earth because he loved his creation and he told everybody about the Lord and what it means to to, to be a part of God's family. And then he died on the cross. He shed his blood. Three days later, he rose to life conquering sin and death forever and opening heaven's doors to anybody who believes to have eternal life. Friends, that's a promise that I'm going to stake my claim in. I need that more than I need an explanation about anything. Friends, we we live on our promises, the promises of God. And I think some of us today just need to be reminded of that because we're struggling. We're in a spiritual battle and we're in a daily mental battle and it's going to go on for the rest of our life. So we need to come back And get on the word of God. And some of us need to get back on our knees in prayer. And we need to get back grounded on what is true and what is right. And to get back to what your core believes about our Heavenly Father. Let me pray for us. Lord, we live in a world that can be so stinking confusing. Where wrong is made to seem right and right is made to seem wrong. We are surrounded by the wisdom of the not-so-wise. And Lord, there are times we take a look at our society and we just think the whole world's gone crazy. But Lord, what isn't crazy is you. And Lord, what isn't crazy is to stand upon your word. And what isn't crazy to be, to be grounded in you and that our faith is staked on your promises. So, Lord, we affirm today as a church that we believe in you, that even though we struggle, we will not be shaken. Even though we are pulled away, we will not go. Lord, we acknowledge there's a spiritual battle going on. There's things that we can't see. But what we can see, Lord, is right from your word that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. You'll always be there. So, Lord... In our struggles, in our battles, no matter what they may be today and how intense they may grow, we trust you, Lord. Help us, Father, to stand firm. Help us, Lord, continue to be men and women of integrity. Help us, Lord, to live each day as blameless and as upright as possible. Lord, we don't want to be on your have you considered list, but if we find ourselves there, Help us to be like Job. We will not curse you, God. We will not shake our fist at you in frustration. We will not accuse you, God, of wrongdoing, but rather we will just dwell on the promise that you love us, you care for us, nothing escapes your notice, and you'll be there for us. Thank you, Father, for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross. You raised the life three days later, conquering sin and death, Lord. Without that, we are nothing. And we will praise you forever for it. Lord, help us to live as obedient children in your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.